Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I said everything gonna be all right. Everything's going to be all right. I wasn't sure today, but it is good day wherever you're listening from. And welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, March 13th, 2015. This week is episode 360. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio, and we got it all set up, is our engineer, John. You got to have faith. And joining us from Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. All right. Uh, today's guest is going to be Dr. Brent Stevens. Dr. Stevens is joining us out of uh, Chicago, Illinois area today. But before we get started, let's thank those folks. We wouldn't be here without our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, you can still stream the show from our homepage at iaqradio.com or follow the link that says go to show. We're working on a new website. should be up in the next week or two. You can also, of course, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question thanks joe win a cool prize by out-competing fellow iaq radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can either email it to czalotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text them the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To John Turnage, Umpire Technologies Group, Pleasant Garden, North Carolina, for decoding the acronym MERV as minimum efficiency reporting value. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, the 13th of March, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your, sor- your link to industry training, 
certification, standards, and events. Their website is prfca.org. Now for today's IAQ Radio Trivia question. Name the IIT graduate who, while working at Motorola in the 1970s, conceived the mobile phone and led the team that developed it and brought it to market. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Dr. Brent Stevens is with us today. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering at Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. He teaches courses there in building science, building enclosure design, and indoor air pollution. He has a Ph.D. in civil engineering and a master's in environmental and water resources engineering. Both are from the University of Texas at Austin. Um, we've had quite a few University of Texas grads here, uh, Dr. Stevens, and members of the Built Environment Research Group at IIT conduct research on energy and air quality in the built environment. They're primarily with field measurements in and around buildings. Their work continues to advance methods for assessing energy efficiency, indoor air quality, and environmental exposure within buildings. Cliff picked out a, a, a good musical clip. It's kind of a, not quite all music, but let's check this out. For more than 100 years, we have quietly supported the city of Big Shoulders, strengthening its backbone and making sure it stood tall. Our engineers and architects shaped Chicago's skyline. Our financial experts made its trading floors run faster. Our attorneys shaped its laws. Our scientists helped make its research labs world famous. And our industrial designers re-engineered how business does business. Our graduates and faculty have altered the course of human history, giving us the cell phone, magnetic recording, barcodes, perfect power, and smart grids. That's because there's always been something in our DNA that makes us hardwired to ask, what if, and answer, why not? Dr. Stevens, all right, we got you. <laughs> hey, Joe, how's it going? It's great, it's great. Sometimes technology makes me want to throw this computer, but uh, all's well, all's well. How about yourself in Chicago? No, everything's great. We're supposed to hit 60 degrees today, which is unbelievable. Had a long, tough winter, huh? Yeah, yeah. Not, no Boston winter, but that's close. That was some pretty inspirational music you uh, just played there. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I had a hard time. I couldn't, I couldn't find a fight song or anything. <laughs> I, I, but I did find that. Our, our mascot is a scarlet hawk, so I think it would just be like a, a bird tweeting or something. Well, I actually had some kind of Harlem boogie dance or something like that that they kind of filmed with the Hawk and a bunch of students, but they didn't really say anything, and no one would have known it was them. It was one of those things. Well, let's let's start with um, you started out closer to home at Tennessee Technological University, and you were in civil engineering. How did you get interested in energy efficiency and indoor air quality? Well, you know, that's, um, not a, not a very typical path, but I don't, I guess no one's really is. Um, I got interested in energy efficiency, I think pretty early, but didn't really realize it. Um, I had a, I had a friend in, in uh, high school, his dad worked for this, um, electrical engineering firm that, that, uh, as I think of it now, I think they were kind of an, uh, like an ESCO, an energy service contractor of, of some kind. And, 
Um, so, you know, they, they made plenty of money by going into buildings and, and applying energy efficiency retrofits and then, you know, reaping a part of those savings. I thought that was a pretty clever model and to be able to do something good uh, and, and, and make a buck at the same time. So um, I, uh, I was really into computers in high school and I worked at this mom and pop computer store. And then kind of uh, when, when uh, I ended up going to college just down the road for undergrad, I went into electrical engineering and I was uh, did electrical engineering for about two weeks um, before dropping out of it. Um, there was just it just didn't work with my brain. They kept they kept you know the professors kept kind of describing voltage and current in terms of things that I could understand like like water flowing down a hill and so forth. So then who deals with water flowing down a hill? That's civil engineering, engineering <laughs> and so forth. So <laughs> I moved over in, into that realm uh, and really got interested more in the environmental side, worked in some environmental student groups and that kind of thing. And, and the classes that I really enjoyed the most as an undergrad were in, in environmental engineering, whether it had to do with basic water treatment, water resources, or, or outdoor air quality. Um, so uh, ended up hearing a, hearing a talk from someone about green buildings and energy-efficient buildings. Um, and that just kind of lit lit a fire and really lit me up. So I ended up uh, ended up applying uh, to work at South Face in uh, in Atlanta, um, which is a, a green building nonprofit. Um, so I spent some time there as an intern one summer, and that's kind of where I learned more about energy efficiency in buildings. And first, really got my introduction to building science. And at, at that point, didn't know much about indoor air, although there were some components. We were doing a inspections of, of, of homes as part of their Earthcraft house program. So um, mostly doing blower door, duct blaster, and, 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 and HERS ratings, that kind of thing. So um, once that kind of lit a fire, I, I started looking into grad schools and, and ended up finding the University of Texas that, that focused on both energy uh, in buildings with Jeff Siegel, who you guys had on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but then they obviously had this big indoor air quality arm. And, and, and eventually that just got um, sort of overwhelmed. There's so much that's more interesting to me uh, in the indoor air quality and the indoor environmental quality field than there is to, to plain old energy efficiency, uh, at least in my mind. You cut out, cut out a little bit there at the end. You still with us? I am. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sounds good. All right. I was looking at... Um, Actually, I, I, we had talked before the show, so I knew you were at South Face. I did look at their website. I didn't see anything on indoor air quality. Where do the building performance people, you know, in their programs learn about the importance of good indoor air quality? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I really didn't learn a lot there other than just kind of understanding the, the relevant standards. Uh, my sense is that, you know, and I don't speak for them at all, but my sense is that IAQ is kind of a, a subcomponent of a larger energy focus that I think you guys probably see with, with practitioners in the construction industry in general. Um, I think people tend to focus a lot on energy and just don't focus a lot on, on IAQ. And, and then I think tend to, you know, if you are worried about it, they tend to kind of focus more on, you know, well, can we just follow some standard or guideline and, and go on about it. So I'm, I'm not really sure how, how they seek it out. Um, and, you know, ultimately, actually, the, the, that group is called South Face, but their, their sort of legal name, or at least it was when I was there, was called South Face Energy Institute. So, you know, it was purely about energy, and, and I can understand that. Um, 
but actually one of the things from South Bay that, you know, so these, these, it's, a, it's a great organization. They were doing these boots on the ground, you know, these energy efficiency programs. Uh, builders wanted to, to come in and, and get their seal of, of approval so that they could go through the EPA uh, home performance with Energy Star. You know, maybe maybe they have some integration with EPA Indoor Air Plus now. Uh, since that that's developed, I'm, I'm not sure. But you know, so they were they were they were really good at bridging between you know builders, homeowners, uh, and then and then and then the organizations like Lawrence Berkeley Lab, Oak Ridge. ASHRAE, DOE, and, and all these folks that were putting out good information on how to build uh, more efficient uh, buildings, whether it's residential or commercial. So that so they have they played this key role. And I think while I was working there, I kept noticing these names pop up: um, ASHRAE, DOE, LBNL, Oak Ridge Natural Lab. I thought, man, but maybe this is where this where's all this information coming from? Maybe that's where I maybe that's where I need to go um, uh, to kind of dig a little bit deeper. Instead of just implementing, I kind of wanted to get a little bit more behind the scenes. So I think that's kind of how how I got involved. And then you went to Tex, uh, University of Texas at Austin, were involved with that program, and now you're at the Illinois Institute of Technology. I think I got that right. Yep. And the group is the Built Environment Research Group. I put out a link to the webpage. Uh, with the show announcement, because I really want people to get a chance to look at that uh, website and and look at some of the free you know resources you have there and papers and and there's a lot of good information on there. Tell us a little bit about what your group is dedicated to. Sure, sure. So um, I use this name, the Built Environment Research Group, um, to kind of be provide a catch-all for some of the things that we're interested in. So if it has to do with energy. And, and or air quality uh, within the built environment, which mostly consists of buildings, then, then we're interested in it. Um, so I think it's a good catch-all for everything that we're interested in. So we we work on uh, kind of, I would say, blending a variety of, of disciplines. I teach, I'm officially in the architectural engineering program, which itself is kind of a hybrid of what used to be mechanical engineering, doing HVAC design, but now is more specific into building physics and building science. Uh, but I also teach and have uh, graduate students and uh, researchers from environmental engineering, which kind of lends itself more to the air quality and, and um, environmental control side. So we kind of combine both of those things to blend building science, air quality science, uh, and, and basically environmental and mechanical engineering principles to address energy, indoor air quality, and, and human exposure-related um, uh, problems and, and solutions. So, you know, we, we don't forget that we're an engineering uh, department, so we're always looking for solutions, uh, although a lot of the work that we do is maybe, you know, identifying problems or better understanding problems. So we, we try to integrate all this to help out human exposure assessments, how to, how to better understand how people are exposed to, to what, um, and then under, better understand, you know, what's going on in the indoor environment, including how do we make measurements to, to get to that. And then we do a lot of modeling and simulation in the group to, to try to uh, answer targeted question on, questions on both energy and air quality. Cliff, I, I want to make sure you get a chance to jump in here if you have a question. Um, I, I guess, what are some examples of uh, research that has come out of Berg that gives IAQ practitioners particular advice on how to improve what they're doing in the field? That's a good question, and, and I would hope that mm, a lot 
or, or most of our work can or, or or will eventually be translated to practitioners because you know it's I think our our field of study is so uh, so tangible, right? It's, it's something I could talk to my grandmother about very easily, you know. Whereas my 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 uh, colleagues and in electrical engineering and, and chemistry and so forth, it, it can can you know they'll, they'll they they can they they take it to a kind of a different level. So I think we're so hands on and involved in an environment where so many people spend so much of the time that I hope there's a lot that could be translated. Um, but, but I also kind of understand that that's probably not always the case. But when I, when I look at our body of work over the last two and a half years um, that I've been here, which and then also build upon the work that I did back in grad school for over the course of five years. Uh, I see us really kind of helping out uh, in a couple of realms. Um, one would be some of our research is really directly informed by practitioners, whether it's IAQ or on the building science and energy side. So for one example, we just recently had a master's student who was doing a project trying to, to optimize energy efficiency retrofits to old buildings, old homes, all across the Chicagoland area. And the idea was to try to find out prescriptive, cost-effective solutions that could have energy use in these homes, these old, leaky, uh, inefficient buildings, in order to try to inform policy. So that's purely an an energy-related sort of project. But the the idea is sometimes we want to do things, if we're doing a modeling project, we want to do it on a large enough scale to say, let's, let's predict the, let's answer a targeted question and predict it, the, the results in, in a whole bunch of climates and a whole bunch of home types or, or building types or what have you to try to help inform the questions that are raised by the industry. So I would say on the indoor air quality side, uh, there's a couple of things. For one, um, much like the, the last couple of folks, Al Veek and, and then my Ph.D. advisor, Jeff Siegel, that you guys have uh, had on your, your show, um, you know, we do a lot with filtration. Um, some of the things that we try to do are kind of um, put concrete data on some of the things that, that are tossed tossed about a, a, a little bit more qualitatively, things like, um, you know, better filters or, or dirty filters have high pressure drop across them and thus have energy consequences. Well, you know, we, we um, this is something that Jeff Siegel has done, spent a lot of his career on, and we've taken it in some uh, similar uh, and then some different directions here. And we're interested in kind of using our equipment indoors uh, in, in, in our lab to, to measure the performance of filters in, in, indoors in real environments. Um, so getting data out there on pressure and flow. And, and, and the big one would, would be removal efficiency. Your question last week was about MERV. Um, you know, one of the things that we've done by kind of, we had a paper um, published last year where we were trying to predict, basically, the uh, removal efficiency of PM2.5, which is the metric, you know, particles less than 2.5 microns, a, a mass-based concentration. That's what we measure all across the, the country and, and really all across the world um, to and regulate upon. So that's what we know most about. But it's a mass-based standard. It's, it's, it's not a number standard. And you look at MERV, it's a size-resolved number-based removal efficiency, and it's based on particle size. So it's hard to translate from one to the other. So we regulate on one thing in the outdoor environment, but then in ASHRAE standards, we, you know, 62, we, we say, you know, use MERV 8 or, or, or what have you. Um, or in LEED, you say, okay, use MERV, MERV 12 and get some bonus points and what have you. 
but we didn't have a really good connection between those two. So we, we try to use what we know from aerosol science uh, and, and outdoor air quality and air quality sciences. One of those things being that uh, even though the MERV standard covers 0.3 to 10 microns, uh, as, as um, probably talked about recently, um, the vast, vast majority of all particles in any outdoor environment or any indoor environment by number are smaller than 0.3 microns, and they're really smaller than about 0.2 microns or 200 nanometers. So we have this disconnect. So one of the things we're trying to do is, is find those disconnects and, and, and improve our ability to, to make connections between those uh, and, and ultimately to be able to inform standards. That way, when people ask me in a, in a filtration, ASHRAE filtration committee meeting about, you know, hey, what do you think the PM 2.5 removal efficiency of a MERV uh, 11 filter is? Well, that, that sends us in a new direction, and we, we'll go figure out how to answer that question either through the measurements or modeling. So a lot has to do with filtration and giving people better information and, and, and simpler information to be able to make decisions. You know, you, you bring up these very small particles, uh, 0.2 and, and smaller, and I, I understand, and, and we've talked about in the past, that HEPA filters in particular, and I think some of your higher MERV filters actually do a pretty good job on some of these very very fine small particles but i'm wondering can you tell listeners where does that start to drop off i mean at what point are these particles or does it um you know we hear about nanotechnology and, and the difficulties with manufacturing and and controlling this nanotechnology can you tell listeners a little bit about you know how how well these work on these very small particles the typical HEPA or the typical, say, MERV 12 to 15? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's funny. Um, if you also, We put all of our papers available for download on our website. So if anyone's interested in this, we're referring to a, a paper that was published in 2014 in, in Atmospheric Environment. The lead author is my PhD student, Parham Azini. Um, and in one of the figures in there, we basically we found this report from EPA that a, that a lab test, uh, a bunch of lab tests were done about maybe six, seven years ago on a bunch of different MERV-rated uh, filters, so MERV-5, I think, MERV-6, MERV, a couple different MERV-7s, a couple different MERV-12, MERV-10, 14, 16, and HEPA, I think. Uh, so a big a big range. And it and it turns out, since, since most labs don't use the particle equipment to be able to measure down to the ultra-fine particle range, less than 100 nanometers or, or, or 0.1 microns, then, then it turns out we actually don't have that much data uh, on that. So, if we, But if we do look at this, just this, this one case study, you can see that basically uh, between measurements we've seen there and a little bit of measurements we've I did back at the University of Texas, yeah, MERV-16 and HEPA seem to be able to remove very, very tiny particles uh, pretty efficiently, but it, but it can vary even within from from one HEPA uh, or one MERV-16 to the other. And, and a good way to really demonstrate this is if you think of MERV-12, we, we have this crazy case study where basically if you look at the MERV classification table, since it stops at 0.3 microns, you can have good removal at 0.3 microns for all MERV-12 filters of whatever is required. But beyond there, depending on... Uh, Fiber diameter and porosity and all these all these all these filter characteristics, electrostatic charge, 
you could have a MERV 12 filter that then, for very small particles, dips down to have very little removal, 10 or 20 or 30 percent. Then you could easily have a MERV 12 filter that dips down not very far and still has 50, 60, 70, 80 percent removal or, or higher. So the same, so MERV 12, since it's since the MERV standard really only covers 0.3 to 10 microns, means that a Knowing just wh- whether you have a MERV-12 or not isn't necessarily indicative of, of how it will perform for the smallest particles. So that's a big gap that we see right now. So um, one of the projects that we'll be working on here in, in our lab over, over the coming year um, as part of uh, an ASHRAE New Investigator Award um, is doing like in-situ real, real resident. In, in, we, we have an apartment unit here, uh, actually two apartment units adjacent to each other on, on campus in graduate housing, and we use them. They're unoccupied. We use them for all kinds of things. So we're going to be using the air handling system over there to test just a whole bunch of filters, lots of filters, lots of pressure drops, lots of impacts on flow, and we'll be testing their size resolve removal efficiency from about 10 nanometers up to 10 microns. Um, so we'll be cranking out some data and, and, and trying to build a database of these things. So I can, I can, I'll be able to answer your question a little bit better in, in, uh, in the next six six or 12 months or so. Well, we hope to get you back to do that because that's something I've always, you know, you see more more uh, concern about these very small particles, but as I, you've just confirmed, there's not a whole lot of research that helps us understand what the filters we're currently using do with respect to these very small filters or particles. Now, we're talking filtration, and I, I've got to ask you a question about a, another type of um, research you're doing. I want to ask you about a type of filtration we rarely really hear about, and I don't know how much research has been done on this in the past, but I know you're doing some, and it's uh, this particular paper is penetration of ambient submicron particles into single-family residence and associations with building characteristics. So if I understand that right, you're looking at how well the building envelope filters out these submicron particles. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so it's a sort of a different kind of filtration, but a lot of the principles uh, apply nonetheless, and you kind of treat it the same way. Um, so that the paper you're talking about there is something that um, I did back when I was at, at Texas working with Jeff Siegel, and uh, it really became the kind of last part of, of my dissertation work there. And, and uh, I could talk about this for, for a while, but the the basic deal is that we know that there is a lot of health effects associated with outdoor particles. Uh, we know a lot about that. Studies are cranking out all the time, you know, finding associations between mortality and lifespan, lung cancer, hospital admissions for uh, asthma, stroke, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we know lots of that. But, you know, as you guys know, we, we spend most of our time indoors and really, on average, most of that time at home. And really, in the last maybe ten or fifteen years, we've had we've seen I've seen you know several studies looking at well how do, how do outdoor particles come into the indoor environment where we spend most of our time? And if you look at some of those studies, a lot of them suggest that hey, even though it's outdoors, since we put those many particles, these particles can penetrate into the indoor environment and, and persist, um, depending on a number of characteristics. Um, it turns out that our total exposure is often indoors uh, and often at home. So that was something that really drove me to kind of better understand um, how how do particles from the outdoor environment in, in, enter the indoor environment, 
what are the mechanisms that control them and then and then basically how do you how do you measure those things so so there's a lot of methodology sort of development in there and turns out that a few people, a few groups over the last 10 or 15 years had made these kinds of measurements and they're tricky. They're, they're strange. When you, when you, if you, if, if you don't have any indoor sources and you go take a measurement of a of particle concentrations indoors, then that concentration is going to be somewhat lower or p- perhaps a lot lower than the outdoor concentration that, that you measure at the same time. If it's, if the doors and if windows are open, you have high air exchange rates and, and low removal by the envelope, then that concentration is obviously pretty high. But then if you've got a tight envelope and the envelope filters a lot and it's not bringing in a lot of outdoor air or you're bringing in air through a, a mechanical you know, system that's providing MERV-16 filtration or so, then that indoor con- concentration is going to be pretty low. Uh, and then everything in between. Um, so what we did was basically... Uh, work on a, a method to pretty quickly go out into several homes and make these measurements and get an idea of, of okay, we can make the indoor-to-outdoor comparison, but that doesn't tell us how much is getting removed by the filtration system. It doesn't tell us how much is being removed by deposition to surfaces uh, in the indoor environment, and it doesn't tell us how much is being removed at the building envelope. So it turns out you have to kind of manipulate the building a little bit. You've got to kind of artificially elevate so you can measure a decay, so you can understand how rapidly particles are being lost. But then you kind of have to uh, artificially, um, uh, once you know once you know that parameter, you, you you can either artificially sort of reduce the concentration and then let the indoor concentration rebound as outdoor particles infiltrate into the indoor environment, and you can use that kind of data to solve for the removal efficiency of the envelope. So you have to, the way we think about it in engineering is it's, it's kind of a it's a it's a simple math question. It's sort of we need to solve for two parameters: the efficiency of the envelope and the indoor loss rate or deposition rate. But we only have one equation that we can write. So we kind of went out, figured out how to uh, using a test house, figured out how to make these measurements pretty quickly. Problem was sometimes when groups had made these measurements of tracking, you know, how particles enter and then how they deposit or, or get removed. You know, some of the groups, they'd have to measure in an unoccupied home for a weekend. You know, they'd set their measurements on Friday and come back Monday morning and, and get some data. And that's just impractical to be able to do in a, in a lot of homes. So we try to make this method that we could go out and more quickly make these measurements. So that's a, a lot of what that paper was about. So we went to uh, went around to 19 homes, all single-family homes in, in Austin, and we were able to quickly, within about a four-hour period at each home, estimate these parameters. So what we found was just, we were just looking at a particular particle size uh, class. So basically ultrafine particles or or particles less than 100 nanometers um, um, or uh, or close to that, so small particles. Um, And basically what we found was that on average, the removal efficiency, if you will, of the envelope when the homes are relying on natural infiltration, so no mechanical ventilation and windows and doors were were kept closed, um, the average removal efficiency was about 50%. So on average, like the, the, the 50% of particles as they mi- migrated in from outdoors deposited in, you know, in the cracks and gaps in the envelopes, uh, you know, uh, through fiberglass insulation or what have you. They were sort of captured in the envelope. So the envelope was acting as a filter. But what was also interesting is that that number ranged anywhere from about 80 or 85% efficient 
removing 80 or 85% of the outdoor particles in a, in a really, what are, turned out to be a really tight, brand new, energy efficient home, uh, to only removing about 25 or 30% in one of the older, leakier homes. So it makes sense, you know, conceptually. You probably could have told me that an old, leaky home would allow it more outdoor pollutants and, and outdoor particle migration in than, than a new tight home. But this was, this was the first time that we could actually go out and get, get data on it. So really interesting. So it turns out there's some, you know, it, it kind of, you start getting at this intersection of, you know, oh, okay, so we found correlations with air tightness and, and even age of home. So if you know the age of the home, might you know, we might be able to learn something about um, the indoor proportion of outdoor particles. So the whole idea is starting to kind of blend, um, you know, these measurements are crazy. They're weird to make. You know, we, we have a project that we're starting up, you know, we'll, we'll be given people $50 gift cards to let us in their home for a half day or a day to make these, these crazy measurements. we got to boot people out, you know, for the day. And so there's a reason that these measurements have been made in, in fewer than about 30 or 40 homes in, in, in the world. Um, they're, they're crazy to make. But, you know, blower door measurements are made all the time. We know of hundreds and thousands of these data points from U.S. homes. So we're interested in, you know, can we find correlations between these two and, and better understand how, you know, building science practices and energy efficiency practices like air sealing and, and just general construction practices, how they might influence human exposures to, to pollutants of, of outdoor origin as well as indoor. Well, after the break, maybe we'll talk a little bit about the other category, I guess, of, um, you know, outdoor pollutant, and that would be the gas category you've got ozone you got other things but before we do that we've got to stop and thank our sponsors for our halftime the indoor air quality association a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research visit them at iaqa.org gray wolf sensing solutions we use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop, visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. All right. We're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Brent Stevens out of the Illinois Institute of Technology. All right. Um, Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to get to before I move forward? Well, I had a couple things. Number one, I think maybe we should ask Brent that text question that came in because it's, it's probably appropriate. Brent, in this testing uh, that you were doing of uh, particulate infiltration into homes, mm-hmm. would wind and stack effect variables make intercomparisons difficult? I would 
Yes and no. That's a, that's a good question. Um, so what we try to do is measure this efficiency parameter regardless of the air exchange rate. So we, we characterize the air exchange rate separately using tracer gas, and that would definitely be influenced by wind and, and stack, right? So that would change the amount of airflow coming into or out of the place. Um, but what we kind of assume, and maybe it's a good assumption, maybe it's not, um, is that the efficiency doesn't really change. Much like if you had a, a, an HVAC system with a filter in it, and say it was 20% removal efficiency for one micron particles, you know, we if you as long as you don't drastically change the flow rate, that that'll that'll probably be your number. Um, however, if you do make a big change to the flow rate, you can you can actually change that efficiency value. So it's a it's a good question, and the truth of the matter is there's complexity there that we um, is really best to kind of test in in a in a test home environment, you know, where you have good access to it. Um, but it's typically shown that over over these reasonable kinds of air exchange rates. Um, it, it looks like this this value is consistent, um, but you know the other thing is wind direction. You know if you imagine the leaks in a home are, are more dominant on the south side than on the north side. If you've got wind coming from the the south, then then you actually might have a, a bigger uh, penetration or a lower efficiency than than vice versa. Um, so that's something that really hasn't been explored uh, too much. What about? Yeah, I guess my other question really dealt with you know something that, that I think you know that your research has shown as being perhaps counterintuitive. I think that uh, you know there were big concerns about new housing construction, the fact that uh, new homes were too tight, and yeah, you know, I, I guess that was probably more uh, concerned with moisture and so on and so forth. And I think that. Really, no or little, little or no consideration was really given to these really small particles that were coming through. Well, there's you. You touch on something that's really important that I want to make sure that gets across. Like while we while we focus on, you know, while we focus on the migration of outdoor pollutants, um, sure, you know, we had one home in our sample in that in that study uh, published in 2012 that basically had a, a really low air exchange rate, about 0.1 per hour, so it was a tight envelope. Uh, it was the tightest uh, tightest envelope via blower door test that we had. It was the newest home, this net zero energy capable home. And it blocked a bunch of outdoor particles. That is true. But at the same time, with such low air exchange rates, then with in, in, in a new tight home like this, anything that's emitted in the indoor environment necessarily lingers around a, a whole lot longer. So it kind of shifts the balance from, okay, maybe this home is helping versus outdoor particles, but then anything emitted indoor uh, hangs around a lot longer at higher concentrations. So there's, there's trade-offs that, that we ultimately kind of hint at. So I don't, I don't, I don't want uh, listeners to go away thinking like, oh, we just tighten up this home, everything will be just fine. Uh, we're just looking at kind of one aspect of it. And, and just to mention something real quick on, on that same study, that same home, this net zero energy capable home, that had the tightest envelope, it had the lowest air exchange rate, it had the highest removal efficiency of the envelope. It also had the lowest removal efficiency of the envelope when we tested it a second time. So the same home in a sample of almost 20 homes was both the best and the worst performer. The difference was the second time we tested it, it had a mechanical ventilation system, uh, uh, an energy recovery system that was dumping outdoor air directly into the to the return plenum of the HVAC system. 
And it turns out the, the folks that installed it installed the filter not downstream of that point, but upstream of it. So it was, it was filtering recirculating air from the indoor environment, but it wasn't filtering what was being brought in from outdoors. So <laughs> it ended up being, when we tested it the other way, and it was kind of a bonehead installation, to be frank, um, it ended up being the, the worst polluter, if you would. So it's the same home. We had a question or a text last week about um, the the efficiency uh, how, oh, of the filters on these ERVs and HRVs, the the you know the makeup of the outdoor air coming in, how they typically don't have very good filtration on them, and um, mm-hmm. so that's that's another thing. I don't think we always think about cleaning up what's outside coming in, as opposed to cleaning the things that we generate inside, and. We're never going to get through all this stuff. I've got so many great questions for you. I've got to get you back as as quick as possible, if it's at all possible, um, because mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little more about this whole idea of the building envelope being a filter. And I've got a great uh, text question here. If the envelope is a filter, when do you change it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you move. The, yeah, when you move or, <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> that, well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What about filtration of gases? I mean, you've got all these different types of gases that are in the outdoor air, whether it's you know CO2 or VOCs or ozone, etc. What? How is the filtration in general on those of the building envelope? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and actually, we I, I have an article that's coming out, I think, in the next edition of Home Energy Magazine, which some people might be, be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, where I kind of go through these different classes of, of outdoor pollutants and how they infiltrate in, indoors. Um, so it's a really good question. So for one, if you look at something like CO2, non-reactive, carbon monoxide, not, not reactive, it, it comes in from outdoors 100% efficiently. So it just comes in with, 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 uh, with any outdoor air. Um, so there's not, not, not too much complexity there. And then it, and then it doesn't react or anything indoors so you don't really have to worry about it vocs are similar to that if they're you know if they're non-reactive they they will largely sort of you know not be removed by the envelope although you can have adsorption and desorption which is they sort of stick onto materials and release a little bit later Uh, i really haven't seen any studies into that And, and most people when they make these indoor versus outdoor measurements of vocs and it's hard to get time varying concentrations measured accurately with specificity so most people just kind of assume that there's no reactions or losses occurring and I, I think that's a good assumption for the most part but then there's a few classes of, of reactive outdoor pollutants or reactive pollutants like ozone like you mentioned um, and NO2 is, is another one and there's been a little bit of work there all, although not that much um, ozone pretty much was always assumed to infiltrate through the building envelope 100% efficiently. That is, it doesn't react with any anything. Um, but that was largely because there was no data on that. There was some modeling back in early 2000s. There's a paper that, that did a, a nice modeling study and said, you know what, maybe depending on what kinds of materials are in the envelope, there might be some reactions. And it, it turns out that the uh, kinds of materials, if, if you just put a material like brick or stone or wood or, or drywall or glass or metal, what have you, if you put it in a chamber, inject ozone, ozone, you know, in a lab setting, ozone will react differently um, with 
with these different kinds of materials. And there's been some work at, uh, at um, by Rich Corsi and his group um, uh, looking at this over the years. Um, Glenn Morrison is another person who's done a lot of this kind of work, um, and and several other other offshoots of, of those. And and basically, so if we can say, you know, if you think about it, I I looked at a build, you know, I kind of look at a building and say, well, okay, if this is if this outer cladding is brick or stone and it's some porous material that I know from lab studies to be a little bit more reactive with ozone than say uh, more modern materials like like you know glass and glass and, and various metals, then maybe maybe there's some reactivity there. So we had a paper also also did this as part of my PhD in, in Texas where uh, uh, we developed a method because it's similar sort of thing. It's kind of tricky to to make these kind of measurements and understand the efficiency. Or the the reactivity of the envelope versus how, how what reacts indoors. So so we published a, a paper on measuring how outdoor ozone comes into the indoor environment. And it was a, a little bit of a tricky method, uh, uh, but basically what we found we we measured this in about eight homes in in Texas, and we found that you know the low the 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 least protective home, if you will, ozone penetrated at 100 percent. That there were no losses that we could measure at the envelope. Um, but then in the kind of most protective home, about 40% of the ozone was reacted away at the envelope, according to our measurements. And on average, about about 20% was reacted away. So that that, that kind of told us, was like, wait a minute, for one, there's variability from home to home, and, and the average is lower than, than, than zero, or it's different from zero, you know, removal. So, so that was interesting. We're just starting to scrape, scrape some information together there, and we actually have a paper... Uh, in review right now, where we kind of modified this method and applied it in a, in a multifamily building, one of our apartment unit uh, here on campus, and we found that after running this test about 20 or 25 times or so, that the average removal efficiency of of the envelope in this apartment unit for ozone was closer to about 45%. So it suggests that a lot of the reactions are occurring at the at the at the envelope or at, at the exterior kind of assembly level. Uh, of this particular unit, so it's it's a good question. We don't know a whole lot. What what we do know so far, you know, suggests that this is probably a parameter worth better understanding because it it might really change what we what we know and might change how we how we consider indoor exposures to outdoor ozone and other reactive gases. So we actually have a big EPA project that's starting up um, with some of our field measurements. We'll get going this summer where we're going out to a bunch of homes in Chicago. Uh, we're working with a group called Elevate Energy to help identify homes that are actually undergoing retrofits. So they're, they're going to be, we're, gonna, we're trying to find 30 homes that are undergoing energy efficiency retrofits, air sealing, attic insulation, that kind of thing. And we want to go out and measure these, these removal parameters of particulate matter, which we've already talked about, ozone, which we just talked about, as well as uh, NOx, nitrogen oxides, uh, and, and a couple other things. Uh, before and after these homes are retrofitted. So again, we're trying to find this idea. Okay, when you make an energy decision and you try to retrofit a home, you know, are there any indoor air implications, um, uh, both for buffering against outdoor pollutants, and then obviously what happens in the indoor environment from indoor emitted pollutants. It sounds like we're going to have to keep in touch. We've got a lot of interesting <laughs> things. I agree. <laughs> coming up here. All right. Let Let me move on to another um, a paper we actually talked a little bit about last week. I don't know. We're running. 
Just looking at the time here. I might have to skip over this and bring you back on that. I, we're having people having trouble getting in and out, but our recording should be excellent, so I think we'll be good on that. I, I think what I'm going to do is skip over the, the hospital-type stuff and bring you back for that because I think um, the last couple questions I put together today are really important for us. You, you did a, an editorial on indoor air um, and, and talking about the, the microbiology of the indoor environment and uh, of the built environment and and what kind of advances we've seen recently because of the ability to do you know this um, DNA sequencing and, and looking at the microbiome I want to first of all get you to make a comment about you know what are some of the key findings that have resulted from the most recent studies on microbiology of the built environment yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I know when Jeff Siegel was on here, he's he, he been doing some work in this area, so he, I know you guys probably talked about that a little bit there. Um, I would say, so that in the last 10 years, the, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation has, has had this program on the microbiology of the built environment, and then they've, they've, um, they've funded about, I think about $35 million worth of research in this area. And it's really interesting. You know, I think from indoor air quality scientists and, and practitioners, we've always thought of microbiology in the built environment as, okay, fungal problems when you have moisture uh, and, and or flood damage, right? Or infectious aerosol or infectious airborne transmission of, of influenza or cold virus or tuberculosis or, or whatever. Um, and we've always thought of it as pathogens, as, as the bad. But what's been going on in the, in the world of microbial ecology uh, in molecular biology is, all, all, as you said, all these DNA sequencing techniques to figure out what, what bacterial, uh, fungal, and to a lesser extent viral kind of communities are, are uh, all on, in, in us, inside us, on us, on our skin, uh, on the objects in our, in our buildings and in the, in the indoor air. So the Sloan Foundation has led a lot of this research. And I, I would say that, you know, and we kind of summarize this in our editorial, uh, which was based on a workshop we recently hosted, trying to blend building scientists and indoor air scientists a little bit more into the microbial ecology world uh, to improve studies in the indoor environment. I would say some of the big things we've seen are that when when you go out and you do a culture-based, you know, petri dish sampling or what have you, that that vastly underestimates the the amount and the diversity and uh, of the microbial communities in the indoor air. I've, I always hear numbers like like culture-based methods only identify one or two percent of what's actually there. So there's a whole lot out there. Um, and, and largely in terms of bacterial communities, we've learned that humans are a big, big uh, uh, driver and, and a big source of bacterial communities in the indoor environment. So there's these big human and, and even animal kind of uh, occupant um, signatures that can be found. But we've also kind of known that for a long time, just not with the level of detail that we know know now with these different kinds of tools. Um, we've kind of learned that if you're in a building that doesn't have moisture problems, it looks like most of the, the fungi species and, and, uh, and communities that are, that are indoors mostly come from outdoors. That, that's different if, you, if you've been in a flooded home or something like that, a moisture problem. Um, so humans dominate bacteria sources. Uh, outdoors seems to dominate fungal. And then we've, we've learned also... Um, but, but we're really just scratching the surface here. We started learning a little bit about how building characteristics, surface materials, surface environmental characteristics, outdoor air ventilation rates and strategies, filtration, and so forth, 
how they all how all combine to influence you know both diversity that is what kinds of communities are there and abundance how much of those communities found indoors but 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 there's been some interesting kind of there's actually been some interesting kind of takes on this you know there's there's a, a paper published um last year that was a little bit critical of of the field to to be to be frank about that of, of, over the last 10 years it was basically saying some of these things, yeah, we're learning them with brand new tools and technologies and everything, but, but there's a lot. We kind of already knew that humans were big bacterial sources. We just didn't know it with the level of sophistication. So there's kind of, there's, they're at this kind of crossroads to kind of start understanding, like, really how, how, you know, how can we better design studies to learn? You know, they've really been in this, like, characterization mode. Let's go out. Let's characterize what's in a hospital. Let's go out. Let's characterize what's in a bunch of homes and do these techniques, but let's look at dust or let's do some air sampling. Now it's time to kind of start, and we argue this in our editorial, that it's it's start it's time to start kind of working more together with building scientists and indoor air scientists who have a long history of, you know, doing these manipulation studies to indoor environments to figure out all these other parameters and doing better characterizations of, you know, temperature and humidity of both air and surfaces and doing better understanding of human occupants and ventilation rates and all these things to hopefully try to better understand how you can either control indoor microbial communities or or, or um, kind of extrapolate uh, more information from, from those kinds of studies. I've got a, a couple of texts on this. I'm, I'm curious, both having to do with pets. Um, and I think the first one, Cliff, we could say is both pets and children. Um, research looking at the effect of indoor environmental impact on pets, children, et cetera, that are breathing that lower air is there anything that kind of helps us understand better within the new research the difference in um stratification i guess of the micro environment the the microbiome uh that's a good question i don't think that i've i don't think i've seen anything exploring that um and i and i think since humans are kind of such dominant sources i I don't think that that that's uh, as important um um, I think I've seen more kind of as, a, as an alternative to that. I've seen more looking into kind of what does this mean for health, right? And, and you know, for a long time we've thought, okay, if you lower bacterial or lower microbial, you know, concentrations of some kind in the indoor environment, you know, it's probably better for health. But, you know, there's been work looking at kind of this hygiene hypothesis. So a lot of work is going more into that area. And that's just basically saying if, if you're, there's some evidence that, you know, if you're, if you, are exposed to greater diversity, like more kinds of fungal or bacterial diversity, you might actually have a lower uh, chance of, of developing uh, asthma as a child and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where I see some of this work going. How much different is the microbiome in a home with pets versus a home that doesn't have pets? Do we know? Yeah, I would have to defer to... Uh, yeah, you can, I know from that work you can you see these like distinct kind of signatures, um, and and there's and, and so you'll see greater diversity from 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 uh, and abundance uh, from homes with pets. Um, but you know, I'm not a microbiologist, so I don't kind of I don't have a good understanding of of sort of the different species and organisms involved and all that. But I could certainly point you guys to some some papers that that address that. Well, you did something on hospitals, and I'm curious how the microbiome of a hospital compares to that of a typical residence. Yeah, so we, we worked uh, as part of the um, 
the hospital microbiome project, and the investigator on that was, was uh, Jack Gilbert, who's at the University of Chicago and, and Argonne Lab here. Um, huge study of this brand-new hospital. Um, what's interesting is we did a bunch of building measurements, and we just published our paper on that about a, about a week ago. It came out looking at um, variations in time and space of indoor environmental conditions, occupancy in, in the patient rooms and, and HVAC and, and, and other characteristics of this hospital building. They got in right before it opened, so it was kind of a fresh environment, and then for almost a year after it was occupied by patients and staff. So it was this cool natural experiment. Um, what's interesting is they're, they're just now finishing up their, the processing of all their data. So they collected about 10,000 samples from all over this hospital over the course of the year, and they've been processing the data for over a year now. So it takes a lot longer on the back end than our kinds of work does. Um, so we don't have a whole lot of conclusions from there, but what we do know from early data is basically basically they're like any other indoor environment, at least from a, a broad level, which is once people show up, we start spreading our sort of bacterial signature, if you will. So the place is relatively clean and low diversity, lots of like soil-associated and outdoor-associated um, bacterial communities in the indoor environment before anyone showed up. And then within, you know, just a couple of days, basically, after patients staff show up, it starts to take on this much more characteristic human-dominated kind of uh, fingerprint, if you will. And well, that's about all I, all I can say at this point. Cliff, I want to make sure you get any last questions in before we have to go. No, I'm good, Joe. All right, I've got Thanks. one more here. Um, I've got actually a, a page and a half left here, but I want to make sure I, I wrap up this <laughs> um, interview with, the, with this Maybe two questions. Um, one, with with the work you've done over the last couple of years, what what advice would you give to a practitioner, someone out there in the field? Like, what what do we know now that we didn't know two or three years ago that that might affect the way they do their job? You know, that's a, that's a good question, or a really great question, actually. Um, from the microbial microbiome standpoint, I don't think we're there yet. I think that's kind of why we're still having the we're still having these kind of internal discussions or these these community wide discussions. To kind of understand that, and we're having we're actually having a a workshop at Healthy Buildings, uh, so that's a conference in, in Boulder this July. That really it's like an indoor air uh, and an ISIAC kind of driven uh, conference, but instead of but it's being a it's, it's both academic and trying to reach out to practitioners. So hopefully some of your listeners will make it out there. And we're having a workshop on trying to answer that exactly for, for this new microbiology of the built environment work. But I don't think we really know the answer. Um, otherwise, um, I, I, I would say that um, some of the big things that we've understood is, is um, at least from our work, is like really just getting a better understanding of what's out there in, in both the indoor and outdoor environment, the types of pollutants that are out there. And we're really getting a better idea of, of kind of how, how to best um, control uh, and design and, and build systems. And it just seems like to me that there's uh, some of the work we're doing, I think we're going to be able to pretty soon kind of better inform um, uh, ventilation standards and other kinds of standards. So there's, there's I, I guess my, my big picture would be that if if you don't if you're having if you have a question find somebody in the indoor air research community and ask us and my sense is that there's a lot we still haven't been able to really 
in, improve practice on. But then there's also, also a bunch there that we probably actually haven't translated, but it's but it's time to. So I I really enjoy, you know, I think I've seen like a just a good, um, I, I think I've seen a, a really good um, conversation going on between folks like yourself. And, and others in the kind of indoor air practitioner community reaching out to academics and, and helping us ask better questions and then helping us kind of give better answers when they are there. Let me give this one one more question. I've got a lot of uh, people that go out. We, we, we talk about ventilation, uh, filtration. If I'm not trying to make recommendations, a lot of times it's, you know, we need more ventilation. But on the other hand, you know, maybe we don't. Maybe we need more filtration. Should we be looking more at filtration compared to, as opposed to always trying to ventilate? Yeah, I think so. If, if I, I, I do think so. I think you have to, you know, one thing that we, we've learned in the last couple of years is I, that's really interesting involves CO2 as a good example, right? We use it, we've used it for a long time for a metric of, of indoor air and, and a metric of ventilation. It's not perfect. You know, it's usually been an indicator. And, and, you know, if you know, if you control CO2, then that must mean you're controlling other things, bioeffluents and other things in the indoor environment. But we recently, uh, Berkeley Lab did a study in in 2012 and and published that that people exposed to higher CO2 concentrations, but still realistic indoor environmental CO2 concentrations, um, performed more poorly on these sort of uh, intellectual tasks and, and and these sort of you know mental mental tasks and that kind of thing, so it suggests that maybe we lose concentration and so forth in high CO2 environments. So we I think we still have kind of conflicting information there. On one hand, if you take that, you say, okay, well we've got to get CO2 out out of the indoor environment then, right? So ventilation is obviously really important, um, but there's a balance. I think there's a balance between providing enough ventilation, but then requiring you know relying on filtration. Um, and, and so I, you, you kind of need both is kind of, kind of how I see it. Um, and it, and it depends widely from environment to environment and, and what compounds you're really interested in. But I, I would say that that, those findings are kind of suggesting that we, we can't just eliminate totally, or, or maybe we can find, you know, ways of scrubbing CO2 from the indoor environment or something like that. So I, I, I think balance, like, like so many things in life, I think a, a balance is, is, is important to strive for. I think that's where I see us kind of heading. We didn't get to talk much about um, measurement and some of the the sensor technology and things of that nature that you're you're working on. I guess one of the things I, for some reason, in reviewing your work, I got the impression, and and not just your work, in looking at reports that I see, um, I got the impression that we we need to take more data points, um, especially when it comes to Mm -hmm. things like relative humidity and, and for longer periods of time. Is that something that you would recommend for IAQ practitioners? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've, uh, obviously we're biased because we're interested in getting lots of building related data and and understanding more, but I think so, you know, we're doing that on the energy side more. So, you know, we're understanding energy data a whole lot more. And now when data is, you know, essentially free to store uh, relative to how it used to be, you know, I, I think so. I think the more we can, measure, the more we can learn. There's standards issues and all kinds of things that, you you know, you want to be able to, to, to make sure you're making accurate measurements and so forth. So, you know, I, I think so. Um, one of the projects that, that we've 
uh, been working on and was also funded through the Sloan Foundation, actually, because it was geared towards making more measurements of the building environmental parameters and building science parameters that, that might influence indoor microbial ecology. Uh, we've got a project called OSBSS, Open Source Building Science Sensors, or OSBSS.com, where we're kind of looking at the do-it-yourself electronics world. There's a whole world out there where people are building robots and, and you know, kids in, in middle school, high school are, are building, you know, sensors and, and you know, uh, actuators and all kinds of interesting things on, on open source electronics platforms like the Arduino uh, platform. Um, so we've been kind of taking that sort of same strategy and, and building our own sensors. And we put, uh, we've got three tutorials up right now. We've got one for an air temperature and relative humidity sensor, one for a proximity occupancy sensor, and one for a, a CO2 gas sensor that was actually, we just published um, actually this morning. My student finished it up. And the idea is that you can go buy all the spare parts, and if you know how to solder, you can follow our our uh, our tutorial to build your own CO2 data logger for a total parts cost of about 150 bucks or so. Uh, and so we're trying to bring down the cost and, and ubiquitize or make, make more ubiquitous measurements. So that's something that I'd, I'd love to see the industry going, and, and, uh, and, and I hope we keep working on this project for another couple of years so we can really get more, uh, more data collected in buildings in, in kind of a more robust yet cheaper way. You know, that I'm glad I asked because that was that's part of the problem. You know, people... We've got to make a living. Uh, we're out. We're looking at buildings all the time. I'd love to take a bunch of measurements, but people don't want to pay me to take those measurements. It sounds like you are working on a way to help me and others in the field take these measurements without having to, in a less, in a more economical manner. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. That's, you know, did you? Did yeah, you say so it was, I'm cheap. I'm cheap by nature, so we're interested. In that. <laughs> Did you say osbs dot com? Osbss dot com. Open source building science sensors. Dot com. Okay, great. I'll put that up on the website too. Before we go, uh, fantastic. We've got to get you back sooner rather than later, as soon as possible. I'll, we'll talk to you after the show about that. But is there anything that we missed today that you'd like to add or anything you'd like to make sure that people hear? Oh, no, I think you nailed it. I mean, you started with the, the, with the fueling innovation campaign for IIT. Um, you know, we're, we're a pretty small school here, uh, and, and, you know, we have a branding problem. Everyone always thinks we're ITT, which is a very, <laughs> very different educational institution. Um, so no, I think you've, you've, this has been great. You've asked a lot of great questions. I've, we've got a lot more that we can go over, but you know, check us out on online and get an idea of our projects and, and I'll never hesitate to, to drop us a line. This industry connection, I think is just really important for our field. And I can't tell you how much our work has already changed from the original path that I thought it was going to be on. You know, when you start this job, you think you're going to develop into this and this and that area. But our interactions with industry and other partners have really helped inform us on what what we need to be looking at um, in in the indoor environment. So thank you guys for what you guys do. Hey, Joe, I just have one request. Please. Uh, Can can you put us in touch with Dr. Gilbert so that um, we can perhaps get him on to do a show on microbiome? How would we contact him at University of Chicago? 
I'll, I'll be happy to make make that connection for y'all. Perfect. We'd appreciate that. And and the website for your group is built b u i l t hyphen e n v i dot com. Is that right? That's right. Super. Thanks again, uh, Dr. Brent Stevens. It's been great to get to know you a little bit here and, and talk to you on IAQ Radio. I look forward to getting you back. I mean, like I said, I got another page of things I wanted to talk about, and um, we really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much, Joe. I really appreciate it as well. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, Dr. Brent Stevens. Of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Always fun, Joe. Oh, it's been great, Cliff. I tell you, we, we had some technical problems today for those trying to listen in. I saw people coming in and out. The The recording should be excellent. I heard everything very well here, and Jonathan, I think, uh, can, can confirm. We're going to have a great recording on this. So, folks, download the show afterwards. I also want to say thanks to John. you got to have faith. I think we need more bandwidth. Uh, here at the studio. <laughs> we'll work on that as well. And most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners out there. We've got a new website coming out in the next two weeks. I think that's going to drive a lot of uh, traffic to the website. We're going to go out with the new WordPress format here, and um, I think it'll drive a lot more to your blog as well, Cliff. So we'll be back next Friday, uh, next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.